As a pastor, I get asked a lot of questions. You'd probably guess that, right? People have personal issues going on, relational things. They read the Bible, and suddenly all these theological and doctrinal questions start popping out. <laughs> They're working at their job, and something occurs, and so it raises a question about the Christian life, and so on. So people tend to ask pastors, not just me, but all pastors, a lot of questions. But there's one question that's been asked so often, it makes all the others pale in comparison. It's asked by people of all ages, young and old. I've noticed through the years that this question is asked by people of all different ethnicities and educational backgrounds. It's asked by rich and poor, up and outers, down and outers, people everywhere in between. The question that's been asked more than any other is how, how, pastor, can I know God's will for my life? I believe all of us have asked that question at one time or another, and let's face it, when you're wondering about that, it's not just personal, it's real important. Well, guess what? In God's word, there's a section where he speaks directly from his heart to that issue. Don't get me wrong, there are many places where God's word speaks to the question of God's will. But there's a little passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians rather, chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, that I've always wanted to preach a little series on. And so for the next uh, three weeks, leading up sort of to Thanksgiving... Uh, we're going to be delving into this little passage. Now, it, when you read it, you'll notice it's really short. It's pithy. But boy, it's packed. It's packed with meaning. And so, for these three weeks, let's unpack this together and, and try to understand what God is saying to us. Now, it's just 19 or 20 words in all, depending on the English translation you may choose. And I, I memorized this years ago uh, in the New American Standard Translation. It goes like this in that translation. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to read it at this point from the screen here, and what's on the screen is in a, the NIV, the New International Version, whatever translation uh, you may be using, uh, you know, you'll notice a few variations perhaps. Here's what it says. Three verses represented here, 16, 17, and 18. Be joyful always, that's verse 16. Pray continually, that's verse 17. And in a serious competition for the shortest verse in the Bible... Jesus wept, beats it out, though. And then verse, verse 18, that's verse 17. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. For three weeks, we're going to unpack that. I think we're going to have fun with it. It's always fun to, uh, it's always good when you can have fun learning. But I hope more than having fun, I hope we actually get something meaningful. God's word is always ready to deliver, 
And I just pray that I don't obscure the meaning as we study it together. That's always my prayer, by the way. Your word is powerful and clear. Help me to not mess it up. I pray that prayer all the time. Okay, I really do. Help me to not mess it up. Now, uh, let's just be honest up front. These verses, um, pithy, power-packed, as we said, but, but in, to, in today's verse, be joyful always or rejoice always, as my translation says, there's an adverb in there that gives us fits. We would love that verse if it just said, be joyful sometimes, be joyful occasionally. Be joyful, friends, when life is going well. But there's this stinking adverb there that drives me nuts. In today's verse, it says, be joyful always. Rejoice always. I, I'm looking for some disclaimers. You know? Surely, we don't have to rejoice when our hearts are filled with anxiety, when we're broke, or when our baseball team lost the World Series. Surely. Surely, we don't have to rejoice if we've got cancer, we're deeply depressed, our life feels empty, we're facing failure, we're grieving inside, we feel insulted or jealous of someone, or kicked around, or lonely, or mad, or neglected, or oppressed, or persecuted, or we're so exasperated we're about to quit. Surely not. Surely God's not saying rejoice when you feel rejected and you've got all these issues going on because of these rejection experiences. Surely he's not saying rejoice when you feel sad and traumatized and upset and victimized and weary and exasperated and yearning and zapped. Surely not. Now, I could understand if God would say rejoice always if you've got two fantastic presidential candidates to vote for on Tuesday, and you're just so happy because you know it's going to be a win-win no matter who gets elected. But if you don't have two fantastic candidates, look, you can be all crotchety and bummed about it and have a really bad attitude. But no, he had to go and use that adverb. I don't like it. Why did he have to add the adverb always? That's the word that gives me fits. But that's the very reason it's so important that we understand this. So let me say up front, we're going to understand it. That's our goal. Not just understand it, but apply it. It's important we understand. He's not saying be happy always. Because I hope we all understand, if you've been walking with Jesus very long, if you've been reading the Bible very long, I hope, hope we understand. Now, if you're new to this, I wouldn't expect you necessarily to know this difference. But if you've been walking with the Lord very long, I hope we know there is a big difference, and I mean big difference, between happiness and joy. Hello? Big difference. Hope you get that. Happiness really hinges on happenstance. It has a lot to do with circumstances, how things are going in a given temporal period of time. Joy is completely different. And joy is the word he's talking about. He says rejoice. By the way, Greek verbs 
have five qualities, tense, voice, mood, person, and number. If you ever study Greek, you'll learn all about those qualities of verbs. And the mood here is imperative. Here's what it means. It's a command. He's not saying, hey, think about considering this. Uh Uh-uh. To the Christian, this word from God is, I am commanding you to rejoice always. That ups the ante even more. Now I'm really getting uncomfortable. Not only am I having fits with the word always, but now he's making it a command. Come on. I mean, this is a tough, tough assignment. But I've got to understand that happiness and joy are very different. Years ago, someone was asking me in a forum situation, would you rather be rich and depressed or poor yet happy? I thought for a moment and said, I'd like to be moderately wealthy and mildly depressed. (laughs) How about you? But see, the reason this is such an important distinction is because joy that the Christian experiences is something that goes way beyond that pay raise or that A you got on the test or that new person you met that you just had a relationship, a date with, and you're all excited about the potential. It goes way beyond that. It goes deep and it lasts long. So let's try to understand it today and get to the how we can do this. First, I want us to consider what I'm going to call some joy inhibitors. You know, there are some things in our Christian walk that tend to inhibit our joy. Not saying they have to, because we've already seen that God's given us a command here that seems to be impossible to keep. It seems that way. Because he said always. And he made it a command. But let's be real, let's be honest. We always try to keep it that way at grace, real, honest. There's some things that tend to inhibit our joy. Let's mention three. We could, we could just stack them up. One is grief. By the way, grief is any time we lose someone or something we deeply care about, we grieve. That's a natural process. And just for the record, grief is good. Grief is a God-given gift. I, I, I said to one of our staff people this week who had just lost her dear mother, 92 years old. Her mom had just passed away, and I said, grieve well. And she could see the sincerity, I believe, in my face. I said, no, gr- grief is a gift. Grieve well. Some people don't grieve well. And in grief, we usually go through those five stages, right? We go through denial and anger and bargaining and depression and finally hopefully if it's healthy we move around again to acceptance but grief is very real but here's here's what I want you to see for the genuine follower of Jesus who gets it all who really gets the kingdom who really is saturated with the word they understand that we grieve but we do not grieve as those who have no hope if you get this say I get it would you say that please Okay, so about half of you get it. So let me try to help you get it a little more. I've seen people with tear, tears running down their face. They've just lost a lifelong partner to death. Yet I've seen them smiling through the tears because they get this. That we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. 
So how we grieve is important. Grief tends to be a joy inhibitor. And here's what I want to leave you with before I quickly move on to some of the other inhibitors. I'm concerned for some of you because you maybe have not grieved well, you've not grieved in the most healthy way, and you're still grappling with with hurts, with losses from the past, a job, a spouse, a friend, a, a, a family member, and you're, you're, still, you're still grieving in such a way that it is robbing you, and I'm saying this with compassion, it's robbing you of joy. I just want you to understand that's not God's intention. For the, for the genuine follower of Jesus, there is an exuberance, a resiliency of joy that transcends even the deepest griefs of life because we understand that we grieve but not as those who have no hope. Well, another joy robber or inhibitor is guilt. In fact, if you were asking me uh, what are the most common ones, I'd probably put this as number one on the list, guilt. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. If you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, I would encourage you right now, if your Bible is open there, to circle two words, the words godly and the word worldly. Godly and worldly. Two different kinds of sorrow or grief. This is just another word for grief. Okay. In other words, if you just feel badly about something, uh, if you just feel badly about something, something you've done, something you've done wrong, I think I said grief a while ago, I meant to say guilt, okay, so switch that word in your mind, guilt, if you just feel badly about something you've done, but you don't feel badly enough to repent of it, it's what Paul is calling here worldly sorrow. But the real sorrow, the real right kind of guilt, what we would call honestly good guilt, is the one that leads us to genuine repentance. Now here's what I want to say to you, Christ followers. The quickest way to kind of lose your joy is to deliberately go into sin and harbor that sin. Be unwilling to let go of it and repent. Even though joy is this thing we're commanded to do, we're commanded to rejoice always, to be joyful, the quickest way to lose that is to get into sinful behavior and be unwilling to quit it or to repent of it. John Piper says, the gospel is not a help wanted ad where God's looking for a few good men and women. It's a help offered ad where God, through the power of his spirit and the gift of his grace, takes bad men and he takes bad women and he makes them good. Boy, those are good words. That's the transformation God is looking for, but we allow the devil to have a foothold in our life. I love the story of the man who volunteered to teach in Sunday school in his church. And he, he offered to teach a class of third grade boys, a tough assignment to keep their attention and everything and 
get the message through. And he, he, was, he was hanging on. He was coming back week after week. But finally, the boys were getting the best of him. And he was getting really frustrated. And finally, he did something he shouldn't do. He went over to one little eight-year-old boy. He was just driving him crazy. And he just took the kid by the shoulder and start, began to shake him. And he said, young man, I think the devil's got a hold of you. The kid looked up and said, so do I. So do I. Yeah. And there are times when we could say, you know what? We've given the devil a foothold. The devil has a hold. And he's wreaking havoc. And, and Christian, if you've walked with Jesus long, you know that when those times come, you know joy tends to flee. Now, we could spend a lot of time here. I'm going to try to make this fast. But you can do incredibly thorough studies of this in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Let me give you one quick example. David in the Old Testament. If you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 carefully, both of these Psalms, by the way, were written in the aftermath of his sinful dalliance with Bathsheba. David has sinned. He's done it deliberately. He's harbored sin in his heart. And guess what happened? He had all kinds of unjoyful repercussions. And Psalm 32, he writes words like this, when I kept silent, in other words, when I harbored this sin and didn't confess it, didn't deal with this guilt that I was going through, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And he goes on describing all these consequences. His joy has completely been robbed away. But then he goes on in the psalm here and he says many are the woes of the wicked but the lord's unfailing love surrounds the person who trusts in him and then he finishes it with these words rejoice there's your word rejoice in the lord and be glad you righteous sing all you who are upright in heart <clears throat> here's the message when david dealt with his sin the joy returned same thing in psalm 51 He's dealing with all the guilt. He's being weighed down by his sinful behavior. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And here's the word again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Don't miss the message. There is an incredibly strong correlation in Scripture between obedient living and joy. And there's incredibly strong correlation in Scripture between disobedience to God and guilt. And if that's the kind of guilt one is experiencing, that is a good guilt because it can drive us to our knees and it can drive us to repentance. There are many things that rob our joy. There are many joy inhibitors that keep us from living out the instructions, the command of this verse, rejoice always. Are you dealing with any of them today? Let me mention one more. And again, I, I honestly believe there are probably dozens, but let me mention one more that I think is huge 
and our materialistic culture, and that is money. Now, that shocks you, doesn't it? Let me tell you why that shocks you. It shocks me, too, if I hadn't seen it and watched this over and over again. You would think that money would be a joy giver, right? <laughs> you would, oh, man, now let's face it. If someone can't pay their bills, if someone feels financially stressed, and suddenly they come into the mo to money, oh, my goodness, that brings happiness, doesn't it? Yes, it does. That brings happiness. Boy, there is a sense of elation over that because suddenly things have changed. But Malcolm Gladwell, popular best-selling author some years ago, in his book entitled, it's a business book called David and Goliath, some great principles in there. He shows that more and more money, contrary to popular belief, he writes, does not bring more and more happiness. And he has the data to back it up. I can't deal with all of it. But he, hits, he says, you hit a point where it works in reverse. The research reveals that once a family's income reaches $75,000, that the happiness peaks at that point within the family. It plateaus and as they make more money, the odds of a child, for instance, being happy, begin to diminish. And he gives all the reasons why. A law of diminishing returns kicks in. A sense of entitlement begins to take over. The comparison game, and so on and so forth. Now, to, again, to a real Jesus follower, this is kind of pointless, meaningless, because our joy should not be controlled by our circumstances, right? The mature Christian, the mature Christian, uh, we should pray that we come to the point where we could honestly say with Paul from a, from a dungeon, from a prison in Rome, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, right? Whether, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. In other words, Paul's saying, look, my joy doesn't hinge on my circumstances, folks. It's a great day in your life and mine when we get there. Woo! <laughs> you could say goodbye to your psychiatrist, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you, could, you could really move to another level. When you get to the being able to honestly say, I've learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. More and more money does not bring more and more joy and let yet we're told to rejoice rejoice always second corinthians 8 verse 9 reads for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich christian joy does not hinge upon our financial portfolio Jill Briscoe is a speaker I greatly respect. She and her husband, Stuart Briscoe, are wonderful Christian leaders. And Jill did not grow up in a strong Christian family. They were rather nominal Christians by her own testimony about her family background. She grew up in an 800-year-old castle. Imagine that, in the UK. Jill's family was quite well off, and she met young Stuart and they fell in love, and as they were going to get married, they announced, they had become true believers, they announced 
She announced to her mom and dad that they were going to be doing this, what they called kind of mission work. And her mom thought she'd lost her mind. They, she literally was trying to rescue her out of some kind of cult, or so she, she believed. And, and to try to change their minds from doing this Christian work, they offered Stuart and Jill Briscoe a whole wing in the castle if they would just forget this Christian ministry junk and change their minds. And Jill Briscoe's response to her mom was classic. She said with love, Mom, I would rather live in my cottage with Christ than in my castle without him. The most joyful people I know are real Jesus followers who've learned the secret that Jesus can give them victory over grief, over guilt, as long as they're living in obedient lives, and that they can be joyful whatever the circumstances. You guys know what an oxymoron is, right? Jumbo, shrimp, partially complete, short, sermon. You know, <laughs> you, 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 know, you know about these oxymorons, right? Well, I'd like to add one to the list. Joyless Christian. It just doesn't go together. Well, we looked at some of the inhibitors. I want to now turn our attention for the minutes we have left and talk about some of the joy multipliers because here's the deal. We could go on slicing and dicing all of this stuff all day, right? Sure we could. But what you want to know is how. How can I move toward obeying that little verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.16? How can I be joyful always? How can I rejoice Whatever's going on. Well, let's talk about it. And I'm going to mention uh, three or four things that I've discovered both through practice, through my own experience, and through observation of many Christians through a lot of years now. I'm going to mention a few things that I believe God uses greatly in our lives to multiply our joy and to foster, foster a joyful spirit in us. And if you're not doing some of these things or involved in, in stuff like this, if you don't understand what I'm about to say, maybe it's time to try it. The first one is getting involved in service. Now, if you're taking notes today, and of course all the really godly people are, just kidding, just kidding. I want you to write down a little acrostic or acronym. It spells joy, J-O-Y. Would you write this down? Oh, it's so simple. Many of you already know it. I heard it decades ago, and I've never forgotten it. It's wonderful. Write this down. Joy. Jesus. Others. That's the O. <laughs> yourself. That's the Y. Jesus. Others. Yourself. That's a prescription for joy. When people get that messed up, very, very small chance you're going to experience much joy if you think it's all about you or getting yourself served. I like to read the results of clinical psychological surveys and tests. You know, sometimes people pour millions of dollars into these tests that are done all around the world testing all different kinds of situations and people. And clinical psychologists suggest that depression is often the result of insulation and isolation. 
Numerous tests have concluded that the healthiest response when people are depressed is to go out and find a need and meet it. To volunteer in the community, serve in your church. Look for a need in the neighborhood, get involved. And I've observed that, you know what, that's true. Let me just tell you from observation, the happiest people I know, the most joyful people I know in this church are the people who are involved serving through their small group, through one of our Grace in Action partners. We have roughly, I think, 17 or so uh, partners, more or less, in the area, wonderful organizations, and we go and we serve and we volunteer and we help hurting people. Joy is often an outgrowth just a byproduct of reaching out and helping others. Listen, you struggling? No, really, it, your family kind of messed up right now. We, I, I feel so bad. I'm really, I'm sorry. I, but if you just fix, I, I promise you this is true. If you just fixate on that and you go to bed every night thinking about your family's junk and you wake up every morning and, and your family's problems is the only thing on your mind, I, I know it's consuming you. I know it's important. I get it. I get it. I know it's real. I know the struggle is real. But my concern is it's just going to spiral downward. Sometimes you need to break out of that system and you need to intentionally go and help someone who's really hurting. And here's what you find in the process. When you begin to provide and give some of the very things that you wish someone would do for you, guess what? It comes back like bread cast on the water. Oh, I've seen it over and over. Another uh, joy multiplier is new opportunities for the future. Nothing can lift a person's spirit or help them rejoice uh, more than an open door, right? A new possibility. Solomon put it like this in the Old Testament. Where there's no vision, the people perish. You, you need a personal vision for your future. You need opportunities. It's amazing how that can breathe life into us individually. But here's what I also know. The same is true with a local church. Can I tell you, uh, the churches that I've been into and I've spoken, had the privilege of speaking, no exaggeration, in hundreds and hundreds of churches all over this country in years past, as I was a part of a traveling ministry, can I tell you the most depressed churches I know, they're when the past seems brighter than the future. Hello? Hello? I'll show you a depressed, downcast church and group of people when you've got the past that seems brighter than the future. And sadly, that's true for some churches. It's hard to believe that it was nine years ago that I stood right here before you and shared Grace's vision for moving beyond the ministry at Latham. We talked about multi-site campuses. Some of you were here then. You remember that. And we were praying that God would allow us to expand this gospel presence and ministry and minister to people all over the capital region a lot more than we were doing at Latham. Well, guess what? God really has blessed that effort. Honestly, beyond what many of us imagined. And so we first uh, were able to launch Half Moon in 2008, December 7, 2008. 
they now have regularly over 500 people worshiping, serving at that wonderful congregation. And then, just less than three years ago, God allowed us, by his grace, to launch Saratoga and Greenbush. Greenbush now averages about 250. Saratoga, over 400 people. Oh, God is changing lives. God is doing amazing things. And he's honoring this model of ministry. Many people are being reached for Christ. And all I can say is we're thankful for that. So I just want to let you know now that our leadership team has started praying, and I'm telling you this because I want to ask you to pray, too. See, I believe, it, it's a, I believe it's a body thing. I believe the whole body needs to get involved in these kind of futuristic open doors. I'm asking you to pray about an idea that God would allow us to plant another congregation, probably somewhere to the west, maybe Schenectady, Rotterdam area, It'll be a full-service ministry, dynamic congregation, have its own lead pastor, just like all these others. And we would pray that God would allow us to do that in the year 2020. You say, well, pastor, that's so far away, man. Oh, ooh, I can't even think beyond tomorrow, dude. Well, I get it. I get it. I know. But you know what? It's important that we make plans. It's important that we get, begin to pray. It's important that we seek wisdom and begin to ask God to guide. This is an incredibly blessed church, folks. But do not forget what God said to anyone who's been given much. He said, you remember? To whoever much has been given, much will be demanded. I just don't think God is even close to done with us. In fact, can I say something to you personally? Some of you have been wondering if God is kind of finished with you, if maybe the good, cool things he did in your life years ago, if he's ever going to do anything again. Can I, can I speak a personal prophetic word to you today? If you ain't dead, you ain't done. God bless you. Let's close in prayer. Just kidding, all right? If you ain't dead, you ain't done. You need new opportunities. You need to raise your vision. You need to start thinking again and dreaming again about what God's possibilities are for you. Everybody needs that. And some of us live a sort of second-class Christian existence because we just keep our eyes down. We think, oh, God could never use me, not me. He'll blow your mind if you'll just dare to believe and trust and walk in obedience. A third joy multiplier, very quickly, is keeping the big picture. The Bible says in James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And this, of course, was written to Christians who were going through really wrenching life situations. Their lives were on the line for the faith. They courageously continued to minister. And then we read in the book of Acts in chapter 5, the apostles were arrested. They were put on trial. And when they left there, after they had been disciplined and, and oppressed and, and punished, it says they went away, get this, rejoicing, <laughs> Are these guys idiots? I mean, come on. Suffering produces satisfaction, 
Flogging brings commitment? Are these guys masochist? No. They rejoice because they'd been considered worthy, it says, of suffering for the name. What name? What cause would be willing to, we'd be willing to suffer for? It'd be worthy of that. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go through tough times, do you have that big picture in mind? <laughs> I gotta tell you, can I be honest? Some Christians drive me nuts. You listen to them talk and it's like, whoa, 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 wowsy, wowsy, woo. I'm so oppressed. Get a life. The last time I checked, Jesus rose from the dead. The last time I checked, he's alive. He is working in this world. And he has got your number. Keep the big picture. Even when you're being persecuted. And finally, oh, you'd expect this from a preacher, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're saying. You're going to say, that's just perfunctory. I knew he'd have to get around to Jesus. Jesus brings joy. But that's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? Romans 12, we rejoice in hope. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And all throughout the Bible, you see that. When the Ethiopian nobleman was baptized in Acts 8, it says he went on his way rejoicing. In Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer, he and his whole family were baptized and became Christ followers, the Bible says he was filled with joy. Let me tell you, it's the unmistakable mark of the real Christian. And Scripture gives us this intriguing verse in Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy, watch this now, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch that? Why did Jesus stay on the cross when he could have come down from the cross? Answer, because of you. That's why. That's why he stayed. Who for the joy set before him. What was his joy? You were his joy. He had the joy of envisioning all that would be saved, redeemed, rescued from eternal destruction because of what was being accomplished there. Since you were his joy, guess what? He can become your joy. He was mocked because he stayed on the cross. He didn't come down. But today we worship him because he stayed there and did what he alone could do. He paid the penalty that your sins and mine demanded. And when you give him your life, let me tell you what happens. He forgives all your sins. He adopts you into his family and he begins to change you from the inside out. And he begins to fill your life with joy. 
unquenchable joy. Father, this is a tall command. Rejoice always. On our own, we can't pull that off, Lord. But help us this week and every week, this day and every day, this hour and every hour, this minute and every minute, this moment and every moment. Help us to rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. What a good word. So we are going to continue with joy this morning, or this morning, this, this evening, as we ask our ushers to come forward as we continue to worship with our tithes and offerings. God does love a cheerful giver. Hey, I also want to mention to you something that's coming up you'll see in your